tonight, what I mainly want to speak about, I think of as simplicity, simplicity of being, or alternatively, the silence of the non-reactive mind. Kind of taking off from a guy's talk last night. And uh, when I talk about simplicity or the silence of the non-reactive mind, I don't mean the simplicity or the silence of no thoughts, of no perceptions, of nothing happening. Not that we have to get rid of anything, but the simplicity of non-complication. Of when a guy spoke last night, for an example of that simplicity would be that, that moment of resting between Vedna and Tanha, craving. But it doesn't have to be just that little moment. There's the sense of non-complicating. And I think freedom of heart, freedom of mind, really is a matter of simplicity. As we've been saying over and over, the essence of awareness is just the, the simplicity of being with things just as they are right now. Nothing added, nothing taken away. And I think, in, at least in the way most of our minds and culture seems to work, the trouble with simplicity is we're just not used to it. You know, our minds, obviously, rather complex. The world is complex. Just look, we're used to complexity. Just look at how the body works. Pick any system of the body. Pick uh, the whole structure of science. And the more we know about science and the more uh, science comes to be the trustworthy reference point in our culture and the way I was trained in school, and I'm no scientist, the complexity of systems is, is endlessly fascinating. Of course, if you follow the complexity all the way down, it breaks up till everything is connected. You know, and if you keep following the complexity of, of physics all the way down, which believe me, I have no clue about, but just what I read, you follow it all the way down and you end up with nothing, right? There's no there there. But mostly we're seduced, we're fascinated, we're uh, you know, just entranced by the complexity. And so I loved what Guy said last night on how uh, the Buddhist teaching is really about you know, our condition as human beings, quality of consciousness of our own mind. So just from that point of view, the complexity we get seduced by is the complexity of our thoughts and our personality. You know, we just continually seduced, fascinated, entranced by, I mean, if it, this endless, seemingly, nothing's endless, seemingly endless, endlessly renewable, it's an endlessly renewable energy source, thoughts, over and over and over, and personality, and we can get lost there. So the simplicity is not perhaps quite what we know how to recognize or trust. There's a, a word in the Pali, atamayata, which I've, I've liked this word for a long time. And um, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was in the last century one of the most well-known Thai forest monks and scholars. And for the Thai um, Sangha, he was a little bit radical, the, the most radical who could kind of stay within it in terms of scholasticism. He called Atamayata the ultimate Buddhist concept. It's a concept, still a concept. It's what it basically translates to mean is not made of that, which is like non-fabricating non-concocting, not making something out of anything, not made of that. Non-identification is another way of saying it. But it's, it's the experience, that sense of the simplicity of heart of mind in the moment, just in a moment prior to the subject-object duality concept arising, or maybe that doesn't arise at all. Just the simplicity of just this, 
without a me, without an other, without a subject preceding object, just this. That utter simplicity, that silence, not made of that. The word, I like the word concocting, but I know if, if English isn't your main language, you probably haven't heard that one. But it means fabricating, making something up, constructing something out of nothing. You get the drift, concocting. So a lot of what Guy spoke about last night, what he pointed us to, was the silence of the simplicity of the heart and mind in a moment that is not fabricating, that's not concocting. But also, as you know, we spend a lot of our time in awareness exploring not only the simplicity, the silence, but also from the simplicity, we can also notice how the fabrication occurs. And then it simply becomes another thing that we don't have to fabricate on top of it, if you know what I mean. We don't have to go into like infinite regression about it, say what I mean. But this fabrication is the mind going out and creating a reality about any perception, any experience. And it does this endlessly. Read this. So it's in the island, but I saw a little, um, before the island came out, I saw a little pamphlet from another uh, Thai forest, Ajahn Longpo Dun. He's a disciple of Ajahn Mun, who was, uh, in the last century, this very, very fierce, very revered Thai forest monk, who was the teacher of Ajahn Chah and that whole lineage. So this Longpo Dun, he, this is his, you could say, reformulation of the Four Noble Truths. And it fits in with the way I'm thinking tonight. So he says, the mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of suffering. The mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of suffering. That's the second noble truth. The result that comes from the mind going out in order to satisfy its moods is suffering. That's the first noble truth. The mind seeing the mind clearly is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. The result of the mind seeing the mind clearly is the cessation of suffering. Don't try to remember that all, but just you get the drift. The mind that goes out is basically making all the problems. <laughs> and the mind seeing the mind is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. He didn't say the mind that hates the mind, the mind that gets rid of the mind, the mind that deadens the mind, the mind that stops functioning. I didn't, didn't hear anything like that. The mind that sees the mind clearly is the path to the cessation of suffering. And so that's our path here. That's what I want to talk about tonight. So the mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods, well, this is not a surprise to us. It's, we're very familiar with it. As Guy spoke about last night, he gave a great example of, in terms of uh, the dependent origination where the sense of the craving turning into grasping, turning into becoming, you know. That's an example of the mind going out to satisfy its moods. The way I want to talk about it tonight is mostly in the realm of thought. Not that thought has to be a problem when we, the mind sees the mind and how it works. When thought's simply another arising experience like sound and sight and everything else, and there's just the the simplicity of awareness noticing it, no problem. But when thought becomes the agent, so to speak, okay, as a way of speaking, as if the thought is going out and constructing a reality around any particular perception, and then we try to do something about that reality, and then that reality, and then we suffer from it. Well, that's what we call papancha, right? So just to read the way the Buddha describes that. Dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. Just what Guy said last night. 
The meeting of the three is sense contact. With sense contact as condition, there is feeling. Okay, we're up to speed on that, right? With sense contact as condition, there's feeling, and what one feels, that one perceives. So perception, which is also one of the five aggregates, arises with contact just as Vedna, just as feeling tone does. That one perceives. Now, here's the salient point. See if you've noticed this. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one complicates, (laughs) mentally proliferates, with concepts as the source. The heart is beset. The heart is overcome by mental perceptions and notions that then overwhelm and assail a person. Right? (laughs) He's just, you know, (laughs) the the solution to this cascade of troubles. That wasn't the Buddha, the solution to this cascade of troubles. But doesn't it feel like that? What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates with notions, associations, memories, comparisons. And then these notions can overwhelm and assail a person, assail, like attack. And don't you often just feel like you're the victim of these thoughts? The thoughts have somehow become so strong, you know? And so as much as we say, just notice a thought is a thought, comes and goes, the sky is blue, I'm hopeless, thought is a thought. (laughs) Somehow we can't quite, we know it, we've experienced it, but that was yesterday, which is now only a thought. And that thought is strong. Yesterday I could do it, today I can't. So seeing how this, how when this papancha gets triggered and how we can work with it, not to hate thoughts, The path to freedom is when the mind can see the mind just as it is. Seeing things just as they are, another great Pali phrase is yata bhuta, which is often translated as things as they are, but I've heard it's more precisely in terms of the right um, tense, things as they have come to be, which gives it the the moving sense because things as they have come to be right now, they won't be like that in the next moment. Yata bhuta, things as they have come to be. And that simplicity of awareness can meet thoughts, can meet papancha, can meet this whole cascade of troubles and stay in the simplicity, rest in the non-fabrication, in the silence, in the non-reactivity. So. The beginning, of course, is just understanding as a seeing. I always understand because we use that as thinking. Seeing is a way of, of perceiving the nature of thought itself. Again, as I said, we know it's ephemeral, but then we don't know it. So really, first, looking at the fact of how much we trust thought to explain things. Thich Nhat Hanh says, understanding wisdom that kind of understanding, does not arise as the result of thinking. Let me read that again. (laughs) Understanding does not arise as the result of thinking. If only we knew that. It's the result of the long process of conscious awareness. Sometimes understanding can be translated into thoughts, but often thoughts are too rigid and limited to carry much understanding. Yet we're so, as I said, seduced, so used to just trusting, really have our faith in the power of thoughts that we often don't even realize this whole train of of fabrication has gotten going. So let's go back to the point of perception. This is the Dalai Lama. All of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception. That's why there's so much emphasis on direct experience or true knowledge. I mean, our whole practice, right, is emphasis on just what's happening now, that simplicity of awareness, that just being totally present with what is. That's the only way. 
for accurate perception. So we've spoken about perception. I actually can't remember if we've spoken about it here or not. It all blurs. But perception, yeah, that quality of, of recognition that in the mind, right? Yeah, Joseph talked about it. That's right. So perception, that recognition, this is a bird, this is a bell, this mood is sadness, this is a mood, all of that is perception. And how we perceive, we then think about and describe. That doesn't have to be a problem. It's, it can be extraordinarily useful, right? When you hear the bell and you think, oh, now it's five o'clock, time for tea. So there was the perception of bell, there was the thought about it, the perception of the time. And the thoughts about perceptions are how we construct our world. And a great deal of the time, we're constructing enough of a similar world that we're all sort of functioning here together, you know? So that just makes us think that our, con- our perceptions are completely accurate. But as I know has been pointed out, our perceptions often are not accurate. The perception is colored, is, is uh, affected by the mood, by the mental state in the mind, particularly when we're not aware of what the mental state is. So, for instance, I, remember I, was, I was practicing in, in, in Burma, and it's usually sunny, but then there's one really cloudy day. And I noticed at two different points in the day, one time I went out and my, my uh, thoughts and my mood were kind of a little heavy, there was a little fear, a little unsettledness. And when I went out, the, the clouds looked threatening, you know, and ominous and heavy. Then later in the day, I was in a bright, calm mood. I walked out and the clouds were cozy and it was nice to have the sun blocked, you know. And those, both of those perceptions, that was what I really perceived at that moment. To think that my perception is an accurate description of reality, not so trustworthy. Or when there's delusion in the mind, we don't even know accurately. So say, for example, if this has ever happened to anyone here, after lunch, you go to take a nap, or two in the afternoon, or some odd time, and you think you're just going to lie down for 15 minutes, but you totally conk out, totally conk out. One of those really heavy sleeps that when you wake up for a minute, you don't know who you are or where you are, and the bell rings. You're like, what bell is that? Is it breakfast? Is it tea? Is it the, you know, and you know that moment when you just don't know? That's delusion. But at least you know you don't know, so that's wisdom. But if you don't know you don't know, and you think you know, but you don't know, that's delusion. (laughs) And a lot of the time, it's like that. For me, uh, a good example, it reminds me, is when I don't have my glasses on. I don't like to wear my glasses all the time, but I really don't see so well without them. So when I'm in my cottage, if I don't wear my glasses, everything looks really clean, and I'm happy when (laughs) things look clean. (laughs) I go, it's really nice. Maybe I need to vacuum this week, you know. And then I'll be working, and I'll go into the bathroom, and my glasses are, and I'm sitting there going, oh god. (laughs) And my whole mood shifts. That's the papancha. The perception is just, okay, well, it's, you know, it's not so clean as I thought. The papancha is, I think about it, look at that, I thought it was clean, Ugh, and then the mood follows and more thoughts about it, and then I'm so lazy, why don't I clean, what am I going to do, this is depressing, look at the way, and then it just starts rolling, right, in no time at all. Those are the thoughts that overwhelm and assail a person in no time, because we're jumping on the train and going with it. But see how it comes from perception. That's the first place that it starts. And so this is, I, I find it fascinating to explore perception, especially when you, we don't even notice it a lot. We just assume it's accurate and then go from there. Wonder why things are a little out of sync. A woman some years ago in another country told me this story um, where she had uh, gone to work, her regular work, she worked in an office, And that day, without realizing it, she was in a state of um, feeling bad about herself, low self-esteem, worthlessness, self-hatred, whatever. So she was working, and she saw one of her colleagues, who she didn't have that much to do with, across the office, frowning at her. And she's like, what did I do to him? 
we didn't even speak today. Why is he frowning at me, you know? Going back to her work and all day, that's coming, what did I do? And feeling worse and getting angry and then feeling bad about herself and the whole day, you know? And it building, building, building. And of course, you come to find out, first, he wasn't frowning. Second, it had nothing to do with her. You know, he hadn't even like noticed her. He was just having some thought about something that had happened at home. No correlation at all. Have you noticed anything like that ever happening here? <laughs> and just to see, it's not about bad or good, but about just notice. And this is the mind that can just, this is complicated when I talk about it, but the moment of awareness, just noticing it, is quite simple. You're not trying to fix it. Just watch how it works. Oh, look at that. This whole cascade of perceptions and thoughts and papancha and story and mood and oh it's like this honestly just as if awareness again of it we don't have to take it all apart and unpack it and fix it and put it back get back to the original perception and see what's right that's making another big story oh oh papancha it's like this this whole story, I'm no good, and they all hate me, and everybody here is getting together secretly at some time when I'm <laughs> sleeping and making a plan to kick me out. <laughs> Could be paranoia. Maybe so. But anyway, it's like this. You don't have to like figure it out. Just it's like this. <laughs> Dingo Kensi Rinpoche, who was a great Tibetan teacher, said, when when our sense organs, so it's not just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking. Remember, a lot of our perceptions are mental ones of moods, thoughts. When the sense organs encounter an object, the only part the object itself plays is to begin the process of perception in your consciousness. From then on, as your mind reacts to the object, influenced by all of your accumulated habits and past experiences, the whole process is entirely subjective. When your mind is full of anger, the whole world seems to be a hell realm. When your mind is peaceful, free from any clinging or fixation, you experience everything as primordially pure. And that's just what Guy was saying last night. We tend to look out, look out, but it's all... And this is even a concept, out and in. I mean, that's just some idea, too. But looking back at the mind itself. Ajahn Chah said, uh, he's, he's so pithy with his examples. He held up a vase. Well, I can't reach that vase. Say I was holding up that vase, and he says, look at this vase. You think it's nice, or you think it's ugly, or you think the flower arrangement should be different or whatever. But it's just itself. It's just a vase. It's neutral. It's you who are driving yourselves insane. So it's just to see that our, our emphasis, our interest, can, can see the process, but it really comes out of all the investment into the perception, the vedna, because vedna, the feeling tone, is not inherent in an object. For example, that vase, I could hold it up, and the sight could be pleasant to you and unpleasant to you and neutral to you. And tomorrow, it could all change around again. That's not an inherent thing at all, but it's a, it's a quality a feeling tone in the mind that's influenced by, as he says, our accumulated habits, past experiences, and the, as things have come to be in this moment. So the emphasis, the interest, comes back to the simplicity of awareness, of just simply noticing without needing to give so much energy all this concocting, to all this fabrication, not trying to stop it, but we can withdraw the fascination, the belief, the sense that this is what's holding our world together. You may not want to withdraw the sense that this is what's holding your world together, and that's another story. <laughs> that's also something we can look at. So atamayata, this simplicity, not of hating or fearing or fighting with thoughts or of loving our thoughts 
or of making a world of our thoughts or of needing to change anything. The simplicity of simple awareness. I'll read you from Ajahn Sumedho. He's, I just love the way he talks about the simplicity of awareness. He says, the only way to go beyond being caught in thinking and emotional habit is through awareness of them, through awareness of thought, through awareness of emotion. The island that you cannot go beyond, which Guy read that last night, is the metaphor for this state of being awake and aware, as opposed to the concept of becoming awake and aware. I love that. Any moment, be awake and aware. You're never going to become awake and aware. That's always a concept somewhere else, but just right now, it's like this. You are awake and aware. Awareness is not about making value judgments about our thoughts or our emotions or our actions or our speech or anything. Awareness is simply about knowing these things fully, that they are what they are at this moment. It's very simple, very direct, and you cannot conceive it, awareness. You can't conceive it. You have to trust it. You have to trust the simple ability that we all have to be fully present and fully awake. Trust the simple ability we all have to be fully present and fully awake, just for a moment. Don't let your mind project fully awake in the future, never spacing out again. Just for a moment, this ability to be fully present and fully awake. And begin to recognize the grasping and the ideas we have taken on about ourselves, about the world around us, about our thoughts and perceptions and feelings. Just recognize with awareness, that's all. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to change it. And then this is what I was saying before. As you begin to realize and recognize this non-grasping, sometimes emotionally one can feel frightened by it. It can seem, doesn't have to, but it can at times seem like a kind of annihilation is taking place. All that I think I am in the world, all that I regard as stable and real, can feel like it starts to fall apart. And that can be frightening, as I said, when we know the ideas that are constructing our world. It can feel frightening. But if we have the faith to continue bearing with, in other words, faith and awareness to continue being with these emotional reactions and allow things that arise to cease, to appear and disappear according to their nature, then we find the stability not in achievement or attaining, but in being, stability in being awake, stability in being aware. Just the stability in the simplicity of awareness of the non-concocting, non-involved, non-reactive mind. I think I used that word last night, stable. And so in doing that, part of what we do is continue to explore the nature of thoughts so we're not so afraid of them and we get less and less caught in them. It's not a bad thing that you're seeing so many thoughts here, really. It's like we do seem to need to be hit over the head a little bit. It's like we can't just see something a couple of times and get it. We wish, but no. But the amount of thoughts you've had, how many thoughts would you say you've had since you've been here? <laughs> right. Right, no way, right? No, impossible to tell. And how many have we believed? A lot. But how many have we not believed? A lot. And so we really start to see the nature of them, you know, underneath that we start to get it. This is again Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. The mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning. Have you noticed that? Triggered off by circumstances. And if not seen clearly, they quickly take root and proliferate. This is what we've been saying. Yet, however strong these thoughts may seem, 
they are just thoughts and will eventually dissolve back into emptiness. No matter what you do, they'll eventually dissolve. Try and hold on to a thought and don't let it go from now until the end of the evening. It's going to dissolve. Once you recognize this intrinsic nature of the mind, these thoughts that seem to appear and disappear all the time can no longer fool you. As clouds form, last a while, and then dissolve back in the empty sky, so these deluded thoughts arise, remain a while, and then vanish in the emptiness of the mind. In reality, nothing at all has happened. That's what I love. This whole story and world, and it's gone. In reality, nothing at all has happened. And awareness isn't touched or stained. And all that world we went through, gone. Nothing has happened. There's no logical reason (laughs) to be so driven by thoughts. So, in terms, though, of how we get so seduced, of course, there's lots of ways of talking about it, but one classical way that is in the, is really more in the commentaries, I think. This talks is often called the three papanches, or three particular habits of mind, none of which will be a surprise to you. But it's not just greed, hatred, and delusion. It's a little bit of a different list, although that's the subset. Um, that feed papancha that just take off. And I just talk about them because I find it just interesting to explore, just kind of give me a little bit more to notice. It kind of helps cue me, oh, yeah, right, that's what's happening. You can just see the process. So the pancha, what tends to really fuel this papancha, this just thoughts taking off and constructing a world, is craving, uh, attachment to views, and mana, conceit. So I just say a little bit about each of those, although we talked obviously a lot about each of them. So the craving, I think I need to say the least about. You know what it is. But it's interesting to just watch how craving, wanting this thirst for whatever. It doesn't matter what it's for. In the mind, how when there's not awareness of it, when we're really It goes out towards some idea, some object, a sense object, a mind object, whatever it is that's perceived as pleasant. And when that isn't seen, the energy that goes into concocting, to fabricating a whole world is really amazing, isn't it? I'm sure you've all seen this. And it's just interesting to kind of, at times, not with judgment, the only way to watch any of this stuff is from the motivation of interest, or just the simplicity of awareness. Judgment, that's just you know the backside of craving. It's just aversion. It's just a meing. And it, you can't see clearly with judgment. And when you're judging you, I mean, it's just the nature of the mind. It's the whole world. This is how the mind is working for everybody, not just you. So just watch how all the machinations that go on when there's a desire in the mind. And here, with little stuff, you know, if you have a seat that you like in the dining room, have you gone through all kinds of stuff to make sure you get that seat again? Or, and also that nobody should notice that you're doing it? <laughs> or when to have your shower time? You know, how to sit, how to walk, um, all that stuff. It gets, like, so complicated here. Have you started saving food? and then found out how much work that is, how complicating it is to save food and then put it here, and then you want it later, but you're all the way in your room, and do I want to go back, but I can't do it at 4. Everybody will see me. When can I do it? I get up at 3 in the morning so I can eat this food that I saved. Meanwhile, it rots there in that yogi refrigerator, which, by the way, they would like you to clean it out if you have little pieces of moldy food in there. The the cooks have asked us to ask you to please, for God's sake, clean it out. (laughs) And as you're doing it, you might notice, what was in my mind when I put this little piece of whatever, I don't even know what it is anymore, in here, you know? How the craving 
runs us. And how it's so believable when this is the perception, craving colors, desire colors perception, so that the, the object, whatever it is that we want, a thought, it looks like a beautiful thought. Uh, a person looks like the most beautiful person you've ever seen. I used to have this thought come up, God knows why, of some street corner in Bangkok that I was at years ago. Now, that street corner was a really busy street corner of little stalls selling plumbing parts. There was nothing attractive about this street corner. But for some reason, the mood I was in, it would come up, and my mind would go, Bangkok, so lovely, you know. And then it would you know, put in all this beautiful stuff about Bangkok, and then I'd go into a whole spinning story. And you know, you can spend hours like this. You wake up, and nothing at all has ever happened, which is lucky. Because the other option is you go online, you book a ticket, you fly to Bangkok, you get out in the taxi at 3 in the morning and go, why, why did I come here again? <laughs> what was it about Bangkok that I liked so much? I forget. Choki Nima Rinpoche, who is um, a brother of Sony and Mindyur Rinpoche, he talked once about, in terms of this he said, watch the fickleness. Fickleness is like unreliability. We say fickle in, in English. We use fickle. It's like if you, someone who gets in love with one person, then they get in love with someone else, and then with someone else, and they're not reliable, you know, fickle, untrustworthy. He says, watch how easily the mind is influenced just by a pleasant or an unpleasant sight or sound, etc., into an immediate mood. And then out of that mood, we construct a whole world, and we believe it. And the, at least here, the papancha mostly ends with thoughts. But as I said, in the world, it can go on into actions. You know, you might make a career choice based on papancha. You might hopefully not get married based on papancha. Oh, I'm, I'm a little bored. Let's have kids, you know. And then <laughs> what are you going to do? It's really to, to watch this. <laughs> But the watching it, not the kid part, okay. <laughs> that was a bad example. <laughs> but what we have the chance to observe here in this sense of uh, how craving, Tibetans say craving puts feathers on the object. It makes it much more beautiful. And if we don't see that the perception is unreliable, we're gone. We see that over and over, and then we wake up, oh yeah, in actuality, nothing has happened. The more we see that, we start to develop, we start to just see, well, these thoughts, it's not really anything. So the pleasures, there's this seduction of the pleasant thoughts, the seduction of, yes, this promise of craving, the promise of more pleasant thoughts, is this is really going to make me happy now. And how we sit here and the knee hurts and we're off in some thought. And if you stop, you okay, I really know I'm probably not going to have that dinner party when I leave. But maybe, yeah. I spent a three-month retreat planning all these dinner parties and the menus and the recipes. I mean, you wake up, oh, yeah, right, here I am. And I never did, I never did any of it. I, never, I don't even like dinner parties, you know, but that was uh, the promise that it's going to be so pleasant. Or the reverse, the fear of the unpleasant. So we start to see, though, we wake up and it's nothing. The thoughts are going nowhere. So we can, it's just a thought. What helps us trust the awareness again is what, what Chokinima calls a weariness with samsara. The weary, not a weariness of aversion, because that's just flipping from craving to aversion, but the weariness of this word um, nibida, that's sometimes translated as disgust, but that's not a good translation. Disgust for us has this negativity and revulsion. But nibida, the best way of describing it is um, you kind of lose one's taste for something. The example given of a dog that's chewing on a bone, but the bone is completely bleached out by the sun, and there's, there's just no, no juice there. There's nothing there. So you lose your taste for it, not out of, out of disgust or revulsion, but because pff, it just doesn't offer anything. It's really a movement of wisdom, a freedom of heart and mind at the moment, a turning away 
from something that isn't offering us anything anyway. And so Nibbita, this sense of the, this, the, the pulling, the turning away from that, seeing something accurately and turning away from that which it can't give us anyway. It's not only just from seeing that it doesn't give us something, oh yes, these thoughts, they're really not so great, come back. Also, the, the nibbida, the turning away, there's just kind of it's, uh, a releasing the idea that this is going to bring me happiness just by seeing with awareness the actuality of it. A thought is just a thought and it'll never be more than that. But nibbida also can be uh, developed by attention to the positive, the wholesome aspects of peace in the heart and mind. So it's not just a negative thing. But as in, in times of, in, in your practice here, in your daily life, or as you're walking around, those, those moments of when you're just touching things as they are, yata, bhuta, things as they have come to be, just the simplicity where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. And the mind is not concocting any story about anything. It's just this. Just that sense of peace. I think Guy talked about last night that we don't tend to notice it enough. But when we do, it's so much more, I don't know what the word is, refreshing, attractive, none of these are exactly the right word, fulfilling, nourishing, than getting lost in thoughts about dinner parties. You know, they don't really compare. And so the wholesomeness, the peace, the satisfaction, so to speak, of the heart and mind that's pure, that's simple, that's non-reactive, that's not involved in the moment, becomes so much more vivid and real that the mind and heart, the attention turns away from getting lost in daydreams, not out of aversion, but out of just seeing, oh, there's really another possibility. One of the attractions of, of samadhi, of the mind that's collected and balanced, whether it's one-pointed or in, in a steadiness with changing objects, that sense of the collected mind, the mind that is uh, secluded, citta vuweka is the secluded mind, is secluded from the hindrances for a time. And I know the first time or after, sometimes when you experience it strongly, we don't even realize until then what it feels like not to have all this stuff, you know, in our minds all the time. Like, whoa, what's going on? Everything's just so pure and clean. The world is so amazing. No, just for a moment. You know, there's no great hatred and delusion coming up in the mind. It's like, wow, that's nice. Oh, maybe that's a possibility. Maybe that's, you know, more attractive than let me think about the vacation I'm going to take next, next month. So it's not a should, but it's seeing the drawbacks of samsara and the, the peace, the, nur- the nourishment of the heart and mind that's at peace. Now that's craving papancha. The second papancha is the papancha of views, views and opinions, and attachment to them. Obviously, it's attachment to them, but a view is really a description of the world, any description we have, that we take to be actually true and holding to it, that this is true and everything else is false. Although, of course, we don't usually think of it in those ways. And in fact, we don't even know we have a view. But it can be um, a view of who you are, what your personality is like. It can be, obviously, in the world, political views. We all see where that goes. It can be views about what, how someone else should behave. It should be views about how we're all supposed to behave here. It can be views about what the appropriate kind of food is. It could be views about what's right practice. A really sorrowful source of views is Dhamma views. You know, what's the true Dhamma? What's the inaccurate Dhamma? Who has the true Dhamma? Which way of practice? Which teacher? Is it the Thai forest tradition? Is it the Burmese Sayadaws? Is it the Tibetans? Is it the Zen? I mean, does anybody even know what anybody else really holds as a view anyway? 
And views are an enormous source of suffering. But really, in this level, we're talking about of concoction of thought. Have you noticed that? Huge, huge. I think views are much more uh, gripping and seductive even than you know, craving for sense objects. This is what's happening. We take it as the reality. And we stop looking. We stop noticing. You know, Our perception kind of snaps shut. It's like this. So that's why the mindfulness is this non... Um, my mind just went blank. Well, it's not picking and choosing. Just mindfulness, awareness, meeting what's ever arising, not just the things we like, not just the things we think we should pay attention to. Have you noticed how much we try in the instructions or in interviews or in and say, well, what are you noticing? And how often the mind is, well, this. That's happening, but that's not what's supposed to be happening. This is what's supposed to be happening. Or, yeah, I'm noticing lots of changing objects, but that's because I'm not concentrated enough. I should just be with the breath. Or I'm only with the breath, and that's because I'm not able to do choiceless awareness, which I know is really where it's at. You know, And you can have like people come in one after the other, completely the opposite, and suffering because it's not happening the way you think it should be happening. But you don't think you're just thinking that. You know that's how it is. And how much thought has been engendered when you're holding to a view of what practice should be or what right practice should be, or you're feeling fine in your practice, but then you see someone else. They look a little better. They're doing something different. And one of us up here says something that completely doesn't match your experience. And you don't know whether to hate us or hate yourself, but one of us has to be wrong. And you better figure it out, you know, or you're going to go crazy. And the mind just starts spinning, right? How do the question periods affect you in the morning? Does your mind just go, okay, fine, that's not my experience, never mind. You keep going, great, may it be so. Because you're like, oh, I have to figure it all out. How can it all fit in? Views, views. So much thinking comes from that. So much getting caught. And as uh, Sony Rinpoche has a great line where, he, where is this? He says, uh, we get into so much pain and confusion by getting lost in what happens. And this to me is a good description of how views form. You project a thought, and then the second thought believes the first thought. Then the third, fourth, and fifth thoughts are projected. The first thought is by this time already a reality. <laughs> by the time the tenth one comes, it believes the fifth has always been an actuality. <laughs> right? That's it. Views. Views. And we just don't even see it. Nisargadatta said, the world appears to you so overwhelmingly real because you think about it all the time. Cease thinking about it, and it will dissolve into thin mist. I would say, you know, I feel so real because I'm thinking about me all the time, too. They think, but I don't want to dissolve into thin mist. <laughs> I'd much rather sit here and stew about the fact that my practice isn't going right, and I'll never be able to do it the way those other people are than to dissolve into thin mist and simplicity. <laughs> so views is an endless source of papancha. Not only the thought, but this concocting a whole world, believing it, and suffering, and suffering, and acting on it. Remember the example I gave? Mm, a couple talks about ago about a friend of mine who felt that she was so aversive, and that was the view she had of herself. I'm an aversive person. And the view everyone else had, and they all agreed she was aversive. And that's a perception all agreeing that we think, OK, that could define the world. And then when she sat down to sit with open, balanced mindfulness, deliberately seeing that as a view and not buying into it, and seeing that aversive thoughts were maybe 10%. And there's all kinds of other thoughts. And then in the long run, she wasn't any of the thoughts anyway. right? That's the difference between the simplicity of awareness without a preconceived notion of what we're looking for or what's already here. The preconceived notion can completely blind us to open perception. It's an example I give a lot, but I'll give it again because it was so kind of 
kind of vivid at a retreat I was teaching quite some years ago in California with a friend, James. It was about 50 people, a retreat like this, but maybe a week long. And many of the people had never sat an intensive retreat before. And then as now, I had to sit in a chair, I sit in a chair, and we taught just the way we teach this, and we described how to sit just like we do here. And this woman, about the fifth day, I had an interview with her, and it was one of the times when she had just broken through something. She said, I've been so in agony, physical agony, for the last four days. I mean, just sitting there cross-legged was absolutely impossible for me. So much pain. I've never sat cross-legged before. She's a middle-aged woman. It was killing her. So, but clearly, that's how you have to sit. There's no way you can meditate if you don't sit cross-legged. And I've just been fighting with pain, no mindfulness. I, I don't even know what's the point of this. And finally, last night, like the fourth night, she said, I looked up and I thought, oh, Carol's sitting in a chair. <laughs> Maybe it's okay to sit in a chair. It was like, you know, she sat in a chair and she could actually meditate, like notice what was happening. That's how strong views can be and how the papancha, not only of the thinking about it, can lead to actions. So that's the second papancha. And the third is that of mana, or translated that conceit of self, subtle sense of self, but the way we mostly can notice it feeding endless, endless trains of thought and belief is in this comparing. I think Sally talked about that, where somebody walks by and immediately they're better than me, they're worse than me, we're equal. But just this subtle, it's a sense of I am-ness brought about by there's the perception of seeing, for example. We don't notice seeing. We don't notice the perception that person looks so mindful right away, they're mindful, I'm not, I'm not doing well, and then the endless thoughts about everything you haven't done well in your whole life, and blah, 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 and you're walking, and then you slow down, and finally you're slow, and someone comes rushing past, and you go, ah, I'm really doing well. I'm so (laughs) mindful. Again, seeing, perception, fast, not, not seeing at all, you know, going, 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 going. So there's this comparing that's extremely subtle, and don't be judging yourself about it. Just get fascinated by it. Wow, look at all this that gets going, completely extra. I mean, if you could imagine thought balloons from all of us in the dining room at lunchtime, <laughs> oh my God, you know, it would be like a nightmare. Just go, oh, 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 they're good, they're bad, they're, bad. they're eating like a slob, they're eating so great, they're eating too much, and you know, it's like, oh, please. <laughs> So comparing to each other, comparing with our own past experience. Well, this is the third week and the fourth day in the last retreat. On the third week and the fourth day, I was doing a whole lot better than this. Is it my fault? Is it the teacher's fault? Is it the other yogi's fault? Is it the weather? Is it because I'm old? Is it because I'm young? Is it because of my health? Is it because of the food? It's like, cool it. Yata Bhuta, things as they have come to be right now. It's like this. How simple is that? How free is that from that whole world of comparison to it's like this? Oh my God, what a difference. But the mind goes, hey, that's, you know, we're almost like being a simpleton. I mean, in the big world, if you say about someone, she's a really simple person. It's not usually really a compliment, except in certain spiritual circles. It's not really a compliment. To be that simple, am I doing better or not? Should I be going slower or not? Are they faster than me? Are they slower than me? Well, maybe there's a reason. It's like this. It's like that, that almost like a fear of annihilation Sumedha was talking about. The whole thing just falls apart. But we don't need that whole thing. We're just dragging that around and suffering. Ah, the simplicity, atamayata, not concocting. So the comparing to others, comparing to ourselves in the past, and again, comparing with a view, with an ideal. This is what 
anything. This is what practice should be like. This is how much I should eat. This is how much I should sleep. This is how I should dress, whatever it is. And then comparing to that. Source of endless, endless thoughts. Just notice that. To me, it's a great dining room practice. To me, dining room practice. Because when I'm on retreat, I tend to stay more by myself. But it could also be practiced in here. Just walking in the dining room and being in your body and being aware of seeing. 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 And if it comes up, ah, judging. Notice it. The judging, the comparing. No need to do anything about it. You don't have to concoct anything around the comparing. Just notice it. Seeing, comparing. It's like this. Seeing, comparing. It's like this. It's like this. We don't need to fear it. We don't need to try and push it away. It's also just another thought. Every thought is just another thought. No matter how poofy it is or how much emotion it comes together with, at the moment there's always the potential for the simplicity of awareness. It's like this, awareness of thought and emotion. And it will remind us that just because a thought comes together with really strong emotion, that doesn't make it more true. In fact, more likely, less true. So just noticing that. So these are the three, as they say, seeds of papancha, not the only, but the main ones, craving, attachment to views, this mana, this conceit, this comparing. And not to stop it, but just to notice the process. In noticing the process, we kind of step back into the simplicity of awareness, which is always available. The stillness of not self-referencing, of non-concocting, of yata bhuta, just things as they have come to be right now. Nothing extra not referencing back to anything else or forward to anything else. Just the willingness to be so simple. I just want to end with a quotation from the Buddha describing himself, his mind. So this is the Buddha describing his mind to the bhikkhus. So thus bhikkhus, the Tathagata, he's referring to himself, the Tathagata does not conceive of a visible thing as apart from sight. In the sense of that, they're seeing. The Tathagata does not then conceive of a visible thing. They're just seeing. He does not conceive of something that is unseen. He does not conceive of a thing to be seen. He does not conceive about a seer. So in the famous, just to balance it. In the famous um, sutta where he's talking to Bahia, giving him this little pithy instruction, you know, he only had three minutes, give him an instruction to enlighten him. He said, when in the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. That's what he's saying. In the scene, the Tathagata does not conceive, does not think about something visible as apart from the seeing. There's only seeing. He doesn't conceive as a seer apart from something seen. There's only seeing. There's only seeing. When Bahia, there is for you in the scene only the scene, in the herd only the herd, the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When, Bahia, there is no you there, then, Bahia, you are neither here nor there nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.